Welcome to Season 2 of the Adult Children Voices Across America Speakers Meeting Podcast. You can attend this meeting live on Thursdays at 6 p.m. Pacific Time using the Zoom ID 848-5208-0640, password 061120. For more information about adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families, visit adultchildren.org. The following speaker share from Jennifer M. was recorded on January 27th, 2022. Well, my name is Jennifer. I'm a gratefully recovering adult child of a dysfunctional family. There's no alcoholism going back many generations in my family. In fact, there was no drinking whatsoever, but there was plenty of dysfunction. And I learned at an early age, not consciously, of course, it all just gets programmed into our subconscious that to be valued and to be loved, I had to perform perfectly, not question the rules, not have challenging and independent thoughts, and and basically be a non-thinking, perfect little Christian droid. And that's just not who I am. I'm not a sweet, compliant, nice, nice girl. Um, that's just not my essential self. I'm a person who has strong opinions, who likes to question everything. And uh, things don't make sense. I ask questions until I get answers or until I get, you know, historically told to, um, to shut up. And um, that's just how we do it in our family. Or that's just how, that's what, that's what the, that's what God wants from you. That's what the Bible wants from you. And um, that really didn't work for me. I, I rebelled hard as a teenager. I continue to rebel in a healthy way. I don't comply with social norms that don't work for me and don't make sense for me. And that's part of me being true to myself. Um, my inner teenager is very happy that she gets to question everything and say, this doesn't make sense. Let's Google it and find out where this bizarre cultural belief came from. And we don't have to comply if it doesn't serve us and that there's not a a law against it or a heavy penalty. (laughs) I've also learned to comply with social norms that um, help me be more comfortable in this, in the culture so I can get along with other humans because that's really important to me. So I've learned a both and I've learned to be comfortable and a little bit comfortable. I'm working on it in the gray area. But I, I still get to have a lot of personal freedom and question things and do things that um, that work for me now, instead of trying to squish it down and, and put, squish myself into this little tiny, really uncomfortable box. I want to talk tonight primarily about the other laundry list. It doesn't get a ton of discussion um, in my experience in ACA. And although over the years, I found myself relating to more and more of the laundry lists, I came further and further out of denial. I also really feel um, guiltily at home with the other laundry list. Um, not guilty, but it feels yucky to be the, the, the nasty one, you know, the verbal abuser, the, the, uh, the mean person, the victimizer. It's much more comfortable to say, I'm a victim and this has been awful and this is what was done to me. I think that we come out of the womb with our very own brains. We start off not necessarily knowing how to do life, but we do have a personality orientation. And by that, I mean introverted or extroverted, adventurous or more cautious, um, naturally defiant or naturally more compliant, naturally more spiritual or naturally more skeptical. And I, I came out of the 
womb with the brain that I have. And so I reacted differently to the same stimuli than my siblings did. And for a long time, I thought I'm the most broken one. I'm so much more messed up. Why am I so, so messed up? Cause they're all sweet and nice and people like them. And I wasn't sweet and nice and people left me a lot. And I finally came to accept that I just have the brain I have. And I adapted to the messy stuff in my family in a way that my self and my inner child felt would work. And it's okay. It's okay that I'm not the sweet, nice, compliant one. I was instead of being the little hurt, wounded alley cat in this pouring down rain who runs away from a person or runs up to them and purrs, I was the one who saw a person as a threat and reached out from under the dumpster and scratched them in the face when they tried to rescue me. Because massive trust issues, right? So that's the kind of person I am. And that's why the other laundry list feels like home to me. I'm going to read the ones that relate to me. I might abbreviate them, but you're welcome to look them up in your book if you want to read along. I'm going to start with number one, to cover our fear of people and our dread of isolation. We tragically became the very authority figures who frighten others and cause them to withdraw. I subconsciously patterned after my dad, who was the boss. I think my firstborn Leo brain saw two parents. One was passive, needy, love pursuant, not getting her needs met messy and chaotic and a big helpless baby in a lot of ways. And that was my mom. And I saw my dad as the person who had more friends, was liked and respected in the community, who was a hardworking, successful man, who was the dominant person in the family and also the love avoidant. But he seemed to be a lot more powerful and safer and not sad and lonely like mom was all the time. So I didn't choose consciously. Again, my brain just said, I'm going to be like that person. Because he seems like he's large and in charge. He seems a lot safer than poor, lonely victim mama. And so I became the authority figure and caused people to withdraw. And the way I did this, especially in the workplace, was I became bossy when I wasn't the boss. I was always telling people my unsolicited opinions and advice. And as my little brother once wisely said, unsolicited advice usually sounds like judgment. So I went around advising on everybody all the time. Well, you should try this. Or have you tried that? Or have you thought of that? Or like, no, don't do it that way. That's not going to work for you. You should do this. And people would just look at me like, who asked you, lady? But they didn't say it. And because I struggle with seeing social clues, hashtag PTSD, right? I see some heads nodding. I didn't get it. I didn't get it for freaking decades. All I got was rejection and people walking out of my life. And I lost a lot of clients. Because I was a fashion model and, you know, models aren't really hired to share their opinion. They're hired to stand there and look good and sell the product. That was my job. Now, my outside doesn't really match my inside. My outside is sweet and warm and smiley. (laughs) And my inside is a dragon. (laughs) So I get all dragony and bossy on these photo shoots and the clients would never hire me again. I worked with a lot of clients once. And I didn't know, and I was hurt, and I was wounded, and I was frustrated, and I have a very businessy oriented brain. I'm like, I bring this, and I bring this, and I show up on time, and I work hard, and I have this appearance that society tells me it makes me nice to look at or important, and they never work with me again. No one ever told me I had a personality that was so off-putting 
because of the need to boss and control. It cost me dearly. To avoid enmeshment and entanglement with others, we became rigidly self-sufficient. Oh, I was the maverick. I was the one in high school with a purple streak in her hair and multiple piercings way back in the 80s before it was normal <laughs> because I had to prove how tough and independent I was. I didn't like the social norms and I had to make a big ass point of showing everybody I'm so cool and different than all y'all and I'm just going to reject all the social norms and I'm just going to fly in the face of everything. And, you know, I'm a big both and person. I've, I've really gotten a lot of good stuff out of life by being kind of rebellious and, and, and rejecting things that don't make sense. But I've taken it to extremes. And I really believe in the Buddhist principle of the golden middle way. If you can find balance, you'll have a lot more peace, a lot more serenity in your life. You can comply with norms to the point where you have no self. Or you can rebel against norms to the point where you're just so strange people think you're from another planet. And that's where I went. And I found that I got a lot of social rejection from that too. And I was a lonely extrovert. I've been a lonely extrovert for a lot of my life. And I didn't know what I was doing until I did, until I came out of denial, came into this program and started to see myself in the stories of others in the literature and in the meetings and be like, oh, oh, so that's why they went away. That's why they didn't hire me again. Being pretty isn't enough to be a model. People want to, there's plenty of pretty out there. We're just, our country's chock full of pretty. <laughs> you know, a lot of beautiful people they want to be around. And if you're a bossy, invasive jerk telling people how to do their jobs, you're done. Hard, hard, hard lessons. We frighten people with our anger and threat of belittling criticism. My dad was a subtle shamer. He made snarky, shaming remarks to my mom and my sister. I don't remember him doing them to me very much, but I saw what he criticized them about and I became obsessive about those things. I wasn't going to be late. I wasn't going to be fat and I wasn't going to be disorganized because that made me unlovable. So I became really OCD to the point where I couldn't go to bed with one spoon in my sink. Hallelujah. ACA has helped me relax a little and I can just say I'm tired and leave dishes in the sink now. That's a sign of my recovery. Dishes in the sink. Unfortunately, because of my natural, very assertive personality, I didn't become a subtle shamer. I became an overt verbal abuser and judgmental. Nobody likes being put down and belittled and talked down to. And I didn't know I was doing it. I just saw people, this revolving door of friendship in my life where people would come and they would go and they would come and they would go. And I was warm and friendly and outgoing. And I would make friends really quick because I'm fearless and extroverted. And I would lose them really quick because I would tell them how to live their lives. And I would shame the shit out of them if they weren't perfect. I was repeating the pattern of my dad. We dominate others and abandon them before they can abandon us. Well, the love avoidant love pursuant pattern I saw in my parents, my mom was reaching to my dad. My dad was pulling away as much as he could to protect himself and his little broken boy. I became the love avoidant. I dated a lot of broken little boys who were looking for a mommy to rescue them and fix their life. So I signed up to be the boss mama girlfriend and I stepped right in and I helped them, you know, finish their college degree or fix their finances or fill in the blank codependent control, fix, manage, control. That's what we codependents do. And for a while it felt good because I was being powerful and productive. And I was helping this poor man who was unrealized in his potential. 
Then I started resenting him for being like my mom. I resented him for being helpless. I resented him for being codependent and needy. I felt like he was strangling me and looking to me too much. So I took on the job of being the boss mom. And then I resented them for putting me in that role. Pretty unfair. I feel really sorry for the guys I've dated. I've made amends to a lot of them. Um, yeah, I think I made amends to all of them actually quite, quite some time ago because I was terrible. And of course, we codependents find each other. Just like drug addicts can sniff out a dealer in a crowd, a codependent controller can sniff out a person who feels helpless and, and wants someone else to make decisions in a crowd. And we usually date them or become friends with them until we get recovery. And I can say my last relationship, that dynamic, that was, that was, Johnny was the one who helped me break the pattern. I thank him for that. We live the life, life from a standpoint of a victimizer and attracted to people we can manipulate and control. It's kind of saying the same thing in a slightly different language, but I was attracted to my mom and I dated my mom over and over again. The person I despised the most that I looked down on the most was the one I was attracted to in the men I dated. Isn't that sad? I didn't like my mom. I didn't like being around my mom. When I realized I couldn't fix and control her, there was this subconscious impetus to find her in my significant relationships. And I think that's something I've heard not only in the program, but in a lot of other healing um, modalities as well. We repeat the family patterns, especially in ACA, you hear it. You couldn't fix your family. So you go around trying to fix, heal, rescue everyone else. What a job to take on. How exhausting it was. I was not only trying to manage the finances, education, personal hygiene, and fitness program of all my boyfriends. I was trying to, I was invasively doing that for all my friends. And almost all of them left. It was the most broken ones that stayed. The healthier ones left because they didn't really want me to be their mama. And then the most broken ones stayed and, until I ended it myself because I was just tired of being the only responsible one. <laughs> so messy. Mm. Oh, this one's really rings true. And this one's a really, really hard, hard thing to say out loud. We are irresponsible and self-centered. Well, I was hyper-responsible. So it, that didn't quite ring through for me. I think I was irresponsible in abandoning myself, but I was irresponsible trying to be responsible for everybody's stuff. Our self-worth prevents us from seeing our deficiencies and shortcomings. I thought I had my poop in a group. I thought everybody should just be like Jennifer. They should eat right and they should exercise and they should show up on time and read lots of books on um, self-help. I thought I was fixing myself and I just thought everybody should be just like me. And what I really was being was a monstrous narcissist who very few people wanted to be around, certainly not healthy people. I didn't know what narcissism really was until at some point I ran across a list of narcissistic traits and I read it. And I am, I'm grateful to say I'm not a big, big denial person. I just saw that. I'm like, that's me. It's like looking in a mirror. That explains so much. I've always thought I was right. I always had to prove myself. I'm pretty good with words. So I could talk anybody out of their opinions until they just gave up and rolled over and played dead like a possum. To the point where my own sister said to me, now that we have a relationship, we're both in ACA eight years. She said, Jen, you talked me out of my own boundaries so many times it wasn't safe to be around you. 
I can say thankfully today, most of the time, I make the choice to have people rather than to dominate with words and being right. I've been told many times you should have been a lawyer, you should have been a lawyer. But when you're, when for me running around making the argument and winning the arguments didn't really win me any, any friendships. So I've learned to dial it down a lot. And even if there is a discussion, and I like a good intellectual debate, approach it with gentleness and candor and be willing to hear another opinion and realize that just because I feel strongly about something doesn't mean it's the truth. And even if it is a truth, it is not the whole truth. There are always new pieces to add to my truth. And that is such, such a helpful realization. We made others feel guilty when they attempt to assert themselves. Well, that goes back to my sister saying, you talked me out of my boundaries. I couldn't take no for an answer. I couldn't take no for an answer to the point where I would go round and round with someone about something that I had strong opinions on. And they would just sometimes just agree with me just to get me to stop talking. And you know who that reminds me of? That reminds me of my bio dad. Not my dad that raised me, but I lived with my bio dad my senior year of high school. And he, on a school night, would keep me up till like two and three in the morning arguing the Bible with me. And I was 18 years old and I had a pretty good brain and I'd read that book. And I'm like, I don't think it means that. And there's nothing in there that says I can't dance. It's not there. And he would plead with me and reason with me and argue with me. And I finally realized the only way for me to get sleep was to say, yes, daddy. Do you know how gross that felt? I was betraying myself. I had to betray myself to get my physical need of sleep met. That's how sick he was. And when I saw myself, when I kind of came out of my own delusional denial of I'm just fine, and I saw I was doing that to other people, it just huh, made me sick in my stomach. I'm like, I have the traits of the biggest jerk I've ever met, which is my biological father. Talk about motivation for recovery. <laughs> it's a pretty yucky mirror to look in. Um, number eight, we inhibit our fear by staying deadened and numb. Now, I've always bragged about it being a fearless person, and I really believe strongly in the, um, the gift curse model of traits. So my dad who raised me explained the gift curse model of personality traits. For example, being a bold, fearless person. It's great because you'll have lots of adventures, but if you're not in balance with you know, a, a healthy, cautious sense of fear, you're going to go up and try to pet the nice little baby bears in the woods and get eaten by their mom. So <laughs> I have learned that my boldness in some cases serves me because I get to do fun things like jump out of airplanes and live in other countries and in some cases, it's been self-abandoning and I got in cars with strangers and didn't take care of my physical well-being, like jumping over fences and breaking my foot. So I think sometimes our traits can be just our intrinsic traits. They aren't necessarily survival traits, but we can take them to this oath degree where my boldness went from being, I'm adventurous to, I am not going to think and be... Um, what am I, what's the word I'm looking for? So out of my centered, calm, mindful self, I'm going to make dangerous choices and put myself in danger because I am not 
I'm abandoning myself in that way. And I had so much abandonment when I was a child. Of course, I abandoned myself. How could I do anything else? I was programmed to do that. I don't feel shame about any of my shortcomings. I'm going to say that again. This is one of the gifts of recovery. I don't feel shame about any of my shortcomings. I did not cause it. I did not choose it. I can work my program and other healing tools to move out of the behaviors that don't serve me and hurt those around me. But I'm not ashamed of having them any more than I'm ashamed of being 5'10 or sensitive to sugar. These are just things about Jennifer. It's okay that I have shortcomings. And it's okay that I have longcomings. <laughs> I have good traits. I'm not proud, proud of them. I'm happy I have them. I'm grateful and I work to grow and develop them. But I'm not proud to be bold or musical or intellectual or empathetic. Well, actually, empathy, I am. I'm proud for that. I had to work for that. That was not natural. <laughs> but, you know, I'm just, I'm, I am. I am. I just, I just exist in the world. And I have stuff I struggle with, but I'm not ashamed of it. I'm stuff I'm good at, and I'm not overly proud of it. I'm just a package of combined traits. I'm a human, and it's okay. And I'm so glad I can say that out loud to all of you. Because there were many years when the shame of being not enough, not good enough, not smart enough, not educated enough, not rich enough, not skinny enough, yes, even as a model, the programming is deep. That's one of those cultural traumas growing up as a woman in America. We get told that our value is our beauty and our body, and that is not true. Even as a, even as a model, 5'10", 125 pounds, my stomach was never flat enough, never flat enough. It's a sickness. It's brainwashing. It is people who want to make money by preying on our insecurities. And now I know that I am enough. I'm a 53-year-old woman with ADHD, OCD, bipolar disorder, Lyme disease, still struggle with codependency. And yep, I talk a lot. And it's okay. It's okay. It's just what it is. Number nine, we hate people who play the victim and beg to be rescued. The disdain I had for my mother. I've seen somewhere, I can't remember where recently in the writing, we hate weak people or we despise weak people. Um, and that's the way I perceived my mom. It was hard for me to see her good points because I never heard my dad talk about them and he was the alpha in the house. Dad liked me because I was a mini him. I was skinny, athletic, overachiever, fearless little woodsy girl that dissected frogs with him and learned about organs and birds and plants. I was a total little nature hippie freak. Mom's a hothouse flower. She'd rather stay home and bake bread. That's a skill too. She was an excellent nest builder. I didn't see her value. Because all I heard was him shaming her and putting her down. And I spent a lot of my life, even after I realized it wasn't okay to talk to other people that way, shaming and putting my mom down until one day I heard the words coming out of my mouth. And I'm like, I am punching her in the face with my words right now. How dare I? She's a human being. She deserves as much kindness and regard as I do and any other human on the planet. Whoa, how messed up am I that I've always talked to her this way and I didn't know it was my default. I feel sad about that. 
I don't feel shame. My dad demonstrated to me, this is how you talk to people who are lazy. This is how you talk to people who are overweight and disorganized. You shame them until they change. And you know what? It never worked. It's amazing that verbally abusing someone doesn't really motivate them to do things different. I statements can help. I learned I statements at a treatment center I worked at where you just simply say, hey, when you're late all the time, I just don't feel valued. Could you please just really work on showing up on time? I'd, I'd really feel more cared about. And then that person has a choice. That I asked her how much. I tried to rescue her. I tried to fix her. I tried to tell her how to lose weight. I tried to show her organizational patterns. I was not her therapist or her coach. It was not my place. And she didn't ask. Again, that unsolicited advice sounds and feels like judgment. Oh, hells yeah. I sure know when I'm on the end of it. God, with my Lyme disease, people always run up and try to tell me how to get better. I'm like, oh, hold on, 53 years old, had this since 28. I have tried literally almost everything that I can do and I can afford. Not well yet. Thank you for your kind concern, but please don't try to manage my health conditions. Um, yeah, I've learned by being on the receiving end that that's not okay anymore. We deny that we've been hurt and are suppressing our emotions by dramatic expressions of pseudo feelings. You know, some people are very flat in their, in their way of being. I have a, a, a meeting that I go to um, where there's, there's one person that never changes his facial expression. And someone will say something funny and people will laugh. And I look at him and I'm just, I feel so grieved for him. I'm like, that man is so shut down. I've read that if we shut down the bad feelings, cause you know, big boys don't cry. They're not allowed to be sad or scared. Then we shut down the good feelings and he can't even laugh. But some of us go the polar opposite. And we have these big expressions of pseudo feelings and boy, am I good at anger. I can get loud and aggressive and up in your face because it feels a lot more powerful than saying, I feel scared right now. I feel sad right now. I was in a meeting the other day and I was making a requ request of the group at a business, an ACA business meeting uh, for something. And uh, I just felt this little tightening in my chest. Like I'm asking for something and I'm not only asking, I'm asking a bunch of ACAs and this could go a lot of different directions. And I just said out loud, Ooh, Ooh, I feel really scared asking for this. It's a small thing. I feel really nervous asking for it. And you know what? It helped to spell the feelings. They didn't go away. I asked anyway, I get to ask for what I need every time in every situation, even if it's hard. And that is me not abandoning myself, my inner little Jenny Joy of five years old and my inner bitchy bossy teenager of, I don't know, 16, some days. <laughs> I get to ask for what I need. And that feels a lot better than throwing a fit and having these big old pseudo emotions. We manage massive amounts of deprivation we feel coming from abandonment within the home by quickly letting go of relationships that threaten our independence. I was the girl who had a new boyfriend every year for like six or seven years. It was like a mail order subscription. A new one just showed up every year. And then I dumped the old one because A, I was getting bored of him and B, it was getting too close. 
I saw that pattern. I recognized it. I'm like, this is an actual thing after the third or fourth time. I'm like, what is this? Now I realized over time, I'm a sex and love addict, which I believe most of us ACAs are. Some of us more sex addicts and more love addicts. A lot of us have made havoc in our lives feeling that we have to have a partner, sacrificing ourselves to have a partner, et cetera. You know, just that filling in the, filling in the missing hole in our heart with a person instead of recovery. And I did that over and over again. And I just kept leaving and leaving and leaving until I realized this isn't working. This jumping into bed, then jumping into a relationship and then jumping into cohabitation and then jumping out for this year's model isn't working. And it was something I started working on with my therapist. I heard what I heard the whisperings of what sex and love addiction were. I started reading up and on, reading up on it and realized, okay, I need to, I need to date differently. So for me, sex is glue. Well, this is not for me. This is a universal principle of human being. Sex is glue. So me gluing myself to a stranger is a recipe for a relational disaster. I remember about month eight, I would wake up and look at the person next to me and be like, who are you? And how'd you get in my bed? <laughs> I didn't know them. I knew lust. I knew loneliness, but I, I didn't know my partner. And so that love avoidant pattern I saw in my dad He's on his fourth wife, by the way. Both my dads ended up with four wives, um, interestingly enough. And that love avoidant, if it gets too close, it strangles me. If it's not new and titillating, it's not fun anymore. The, uh, the new, I was addicted to that, but I wasn't really experiencing love and real intimacy. I was doing the love avoidant thing by getting high on a new relationship. Okay, we refuse to admit we've been affected by the family dysfunction. Oh my goodness, I was such a high-functioning denier. My mom was late, I was always on time. My mom was overweight, I was obsessively skinny. Thank God I didn't develop anorexia, I was a prime candidate. Uh, my, sis my sister did develop an eating disorder, being in the same family, in our different brains, different reactions. Um, mom was cluttered, I became OCD, spotless and neat. And I'm like, I'm not like her, I'm all better. I escaped the patterns of my childhood. I didn't realize I became like Dan, the dad, the professional shamer, the love avoidant, the abandoner, the one who leaves when things are hard instead of doing the work and never did the work on self. So I denied it until it didn't serve me anymore. And I just had to look in the mirror and say, Okay, there's this revolving door of relationships. Friends leave me. I leave boyfriends. Either way, I'm losing. I'm the common denominator. I really just can't blame everybody else. It's not the world's fault. What can I do to work on myself? I will say that I, I got into therapy quite young and um, I did learn some things about myself. I got on antidepressants, which helped me function in the world a little better. I didn't learn anything about narcissism, sex and love addiction, family of origin trauma at all until I got into ACA. So I spent 30 years on and off paying for therapy, you know, independent contractor um, that kind of sort of helped. But I got more out of the first two years of ACA than I did all those 30 years combined the meditation retreats, the stacks, and I mean stacks of self-help books. I really believe that there is 
um, higher power informed, miraculous system and ACA that works like nothing else. And I believe a big part of it is peer support. If we love ourselves enough to pick up the thousand pound telephone, we can get the support from our peers that we never could get from our family, friends, or culture of origin. The final one, we act as if nothing, we act as if we are nothing like the dependent people who raised us. Now that's kind of a restatement of the previous one, but I'll just mention one thing. I always talk down about my mom being a man addict and having to have a man in her life. And that's why she abandoned me a lot as a single mom until I was five and got a pretty good dad. Um, and I, I would deride her and talk about her. I'm so independent and stuff. And then I finally looked in the mirror and I'm like, I've never gone six months without a boyfriend or at least a lover. Oh my God. I make my mom look like, um, an occasional, um, a person has an occasional glass of wine versus me drinking a gallon of vodka every day. You know, I'm like, how dare I shame her and, and deny that I've picked up the same love addict trait. So that is kind of how I relate to the other side of the laundry list. When I share, I, I often cut my, sh my sharing a little short to leave some time for questions. Is that something, Gretchen, you do in this group or do you want to go right into share time? No, um, in fact, in our shares, when we're sharing, we will, if you'll allow, ask questions and you can answer. Also during the share time. Perfect. I'll just wrap this up with saying the first four years of my ACA journey, I dabbled. I went to got a lot of meetings. I didn't work the steps because I just worked in the, another, another program and I thought I was good. Completely naive about, <laughs> you know, the other 12, the 12 steps in the other programs and, um, and the 12 steps in ACA. It's, it's like, I don't know, going from hamburger to filet mignon for me. There's so much deeper healing. I mean, I can be sober, but I'd rather be emotionally healed and be less likely to act out because the act, the addictions are the symptoms, right? It's the heart that needs to heal. And when I look at the, the first four years of dabbling and abandoning myself by not doing it, I think about it as like I had a horrible MRSA infection, which was eating my soul. You know, one of those flesh eating, horrible, ugh, you know, antibiotic, antibiotic resistant bacterial infections. And I had this MRSA eating up my soul and I would take an, an, one antibiotic a week and then I two and then I'd take two or three antibiotics and I would take these antibiotics inconsistently for a long period of time. Guess what? I didn't really get better. I just went into remission until I worked the steps, got a sponsor, attended a lot of meetings, held myself accountable to say, I love you, Jennifer. You deserve better. You deserve to take those, the meds every day. And now I do recovery work every day, regardless. Some days I miss a piece of it. Some days it's meditation and reading and writing to the inner child and prayer. Some days I just do the inner child writing and the meditation, go to three or four meetings a week, sponsor one person, which is all I can do with my physical limitations. But you know what? This is me loving myself hard, like with passion, like I deserve. I'm worth this. Little Jenny is a precious little innocent girl. She doesn't deserve any more abandonment and I will never abandon her again. Thank you.